Hey listeners, Chloe here. If you need to stay as up-to-date with the latest developments and innovations in the luxury industry as I do, you need to dive into Vogue Business. It's your ticket to a global perspective on fashion and beauty, delivering exclusive insights that will give you the edge in this competitive, dynamic industry. Just visit VogueBusiness.com today and use the code RUN20 at checkout to join the Vogue Business community. That's VogueBusiness.com, promo code RUN20. Don't miss out. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is The Run Through. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. You did not go to the Chanel show in L.A. I didn't. I didn't go to the Chanel show in L.A. Tell us what was going on there. You know, it was their resort show, and they decided to take it to the Paramount Studio set, so... As we know from Amanda Harlick, Carl sort of pioneered the traveling resort cruise. So yeah, it was a big Hollywood moment for Chanel, although tricky moment since uh, late the night of the Met Gala, the Writers Guild went on strike. So it's not really a moment for celebrating the studio system in LA for Chanel. Not Um, exactly. Yeah, I'm just, you know, it's a nice uh, juxtaposition, uh, the picket line. And (laughs) I'm just impressed that they're able to do so many events in such rapid succession. I mean, the Met, they were so involved with the Met. I thought you meant the Writers Guild. Oh, yeah. no, 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 Chanel. <laughs> Not the Writers Guild. But the Writers Guild is going to affect events. Um, I was oh, for talking sure. to someone last night who works in theater, and it's very likely the Tony's Awards will be canceled because wow. unless poor Ariana DeBose, who's the host, is going to be ad-libbing up there with no writers, I mean... And she's already done that with not great results. Well... <laughs> I don't know. It reminded me of I loved J.R. Moringer's uh, piece in The New Yorker this week. Right. He wrote a personal history about being a ghostwriter. And wow. you forget that all of these shows are, even though it's the host is speaking, the, the presenters are speaking, they're not writing these. These are all written by the writers. So unless their demands are met, we may not be seeing a Tony Awards come Because June. how many? That's that's next month. That's it's uh, early. Scheduled. It's early June. I think it's June right. 11th. Um, right. It's so usually that Sunday. It probably won't be over by that time. But yeah, I, I you know, it's it's odd not to uh, have any late night shows, no SNL. But yeah, I, we'll see what happens. I, I sort of have this vision of like the Tonys with a giant inflatable rat outside, <laughs> like everyone <laughs> having to pass the rat. <laughs> it does feel like. Things are shuttering right and left. Uh, Paper Magazine closed. That was very sad. That was very sad. Felt like a New York institution. Yeah, that was super sad. I mean, I have been somewhat reassured by the fact that when I filter, you know, articles that are currently on Vogue.com into ChatGPT, it just comes up with gobbledygook. Is that true? I mean... You know, I wanted to see if it could write a better article, basically. Oh, interesting. And with emotion, you know, you can ask it to write write this article with emotion. And it just was... Emotion full of, about clothes. 
Um, I think it was a few beauty stories I put through, sort of personal Emotion lessons. about moisturizer. Emotion about moisturizer. And as you can imagine, it just was full of cliches. There was no soul to it. There was no humor. Yeah. You can't ask it to sort of like have, you know, wry wit or I just don't think it can no, do I, any I, of that. Or a soul or the human aspect. You just don't, you, you know, yeah. you can't take that away from writers. I think that it can be a really helpful tool. I yeah. Farhad Manju wrote a, a great piece for, op-ed for The Times about how it's like transformed the way he writes as much as Google did 10 years wow, ago because he he's like, it's a much more targeted thesaurus. It's a right. better way to edit one sentence. It tells me what I'm missing or what is a helpful mm. transition. He's like, I don't use the transition they suggest because it's all cliches, but yeah. it gets me to the next step. Interesting. And I feel like I haven't done the, the time familiarizing myself with it to be able to use it as a helpful tool. Yeah, I've tinkered around with it a bit, um, but I haven't figured out a way to help improve my writing. For research, it's really great, but obviously there's a fact-checking issue. The fact-checking issue, I remember I tried it once when we talked about Kirsten Gillibrand's um, law that she was passing, and I said, give me a description of... The Fabric Act. Yeah, give me a description of the Fabric Act. In fact, it gave me a description of a different act that also has the same acronym, but is a completely different thing. So if I didn't know better, I could have just told that that to our faithful listeners, and you guys would have been completely (laughs) led astray. (laughs) Well, this week, the long-awaited return of Victoria's Secrets, of the Victoria's Secret show, well, maybe not so long-awaited. People didn't think it was going to be able to make a comeback, It had been a secret. It had been a secret. It had been a secret. But, you know, given the lineup, given what they're they're planning, which is to celebrate a, a kind of global sweep of young designers and to have, to have it be more of a fashion focused event and to take that kind of you know, that male gazy vibe that it had before and that, yeah. you know, of Vin Diesel pumping, fist pumping on the front row, which was oh one my of my God. memories of the Victoria's Secret show back way back when, which was horrifying for me. Um, what does more fashion focus mean for Victoria's Secret? They have a, a sweep of global young designers, including Sapria Lele, who's a really talented designer in London, okay. whose work is very much lingerie inspired. And in this moment when there are so many designers who are creating bodycon pieces and celebrating the body, I think they have um, from Lagos, we have Boo Boo Ogisi. And then from Tokyo, we have Jenny Fax. And then from Bogota, Melissa Valdez. So I think they're going about it the right way, kind of involving young designers, changing the focus. And will it still be such a big event, though? Oh, yeah, it's going to be huge. I think it's it's going to be a few days it? before Fashion Week. Okay, so it's going to be sort of a big Fashion and Week kickoff. And it's dubbed Victoria's Secrets World Tour. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Chama, did you do anything exciting this week? No, I recovered from the Met. Oh, right. Yes. You, you had a big week. <laughs> I'm actually going to the BAM. I'm going to to, to BAM's gala because a friend of mine is hosting the after party. But that's probably the, the extent of my gala going movements this summer. BAM is the um, Brooklyn Academy of Music. Fantastic. I uh, went this week... My mom's new movie, Book Club 2, opened up. I saw up. the ads. Oh, yes. I saw the trailer. Very exciting. <laughs> it is a big Mother's Day movie for, for uh, lady friends of a certain age take a bachelorette trip to Italy. <laughs> the uh, premiere was this week, and it was a lot of fun. There was a big Italian fest at Tavern on the Green afterwards. So. Wow. It looks so much fun. I saw the trailer and I just thought it's, it looked so much it's fun. It's very charming <laughs> and really makes everyone want to go to Italy tomorrow. Ugh, I've never been to Venice. Uh, I haven't, I went when I, with my mom when I was 10 years old wow. and not since. I, I would to love back. to go. Yeah. I need to go back. 
Chloe, I think you know this better than anyone, but this month is kind of the unofficial party and gala season, right? It's a big, big springtime yes. in New York City. Yes. Everyone's having their fundraising events. Everyone's having any spring blossoming events. And didn't um, you used to edit the parties for Vogue? I used to cover. I right. was out three to four nights a week. Oof. I was, my nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> I was sketching my little notes on my <laughs> pad. I was interviewing people. I was writing about the menus. Um, but it was all a delight. And now the baton has been passed to our colleague, Lila Ramsey. That's right. And she's here with us today. My name is Lila Ramsey. I am the shopping and parties editor over at Vogue.com. Wonderful. And how long have you had that title? Um, I... Took on parties, I think, about five years ago. Um, Mr. Edward Barsamian passed the baton over to me when he uh, moved to London to work at Victoria Beckham, and uh, I've been professionally partying ever since. Oh, my God. So I used to do your job a few years ago. We both used to go to events and write about them three to five nights a week. And people be like, oh, that's such a glamorous job. That's so fun. And it's actually so exhausting and so hard. Are you annoyed that when people <laughs> think that it's just champagne and dresses? Well, I think also coupled with like my shopping editing responsibilities, um, you know, shopping and parties editor just sounds like an absolutely ridiculous title. And um, it does sound like far more glamorous than it actually is. It's so much fun. But I think given that it's not it's not a full-time job, and I don't think it's ever been a full-time job at Vogue. You're the party's editor in addition to something else. You're you're a writer. You're an editor. So essentially what it means is you're spending the day uh, doing sort of your day job, and then at night you uh, it's a transition. Job. <laughs> it's a yeah. second job. So I'm sort of curious how you both have handled the wardrobe aspect <laughs> of it, because I know, Lila, you have such an amazing wardrobe of vintage Cocktail dresses, and tell me a bit about how you collected all of those and how you approach dressing for galas now. Because I still feel like your best moments are when you're wearing a vintage. Oh, thank you. You're so sweet. Dress. It's, I'm so thankful that I have this job because I don't know what I would be wearing all my dresses to if I, <laughs> if I didn't have to go to, to parties all the time. I'm such a fan of vintage, and it's really a, a hobby of mine. And I, I have a, a, a closet full of all these dresses that really um, deserve such a glamorous setting uh, to be worn at. It was I still a- don't know where you keep all these dresses. <laughs> do you have stories? Like, what's, I do what's- have stories. Okay, so when I was moving into my apartment, it was like, you know, I don't care what the bedroom looks like. Tell me about the closet. Oh, yeah, me too. I'm always about the closet. <laughs> you know, it's I have, thankfully, nice closet space, and I do have a ball gown closet, as ridiculous as that sounds. Oh, my God. I'm imagining Katherine Heigl in 27 dresses. <laughs> <laughs> You're exactly right. You just open and just tool explodes out. And, okay. and they're all vintage. 95% of them yeah. are vintage. We were talking about this yesterday about the sort of philanthropy side of it and why why have a gala when you can just donate to charity? Like why are these why are these events so important and and yeah, a little bit about the I mean, do you know a little bit about the history of of this specifically in New York? You can always just write a check. The galas aren't aren't needed. Um, right. Of course, these galas are events that are 
really well produced. You want to make sure if you're spending a lot of money on a ticket that everyone is enjoying themselves. And there's often amazing entertainers um, where we're just speaking about the uh, the Amphar Gala. And that has an incredible lineup. There's a Breast Cancer Research Foundation Gala that Diana Ross is performing at. So wow. I've, I've been so like I'm, I'm lucky and blessed to be able to see, uh, you know, singers deliver concerts and really intimate venues. The performers are most most of the time, I think, donating their services. Um, if there is an art auction, which is another way to raise funds, right. um, there are ticket sales, of course. Those individuals who are on the host committee or uh, involved in the event also have to pay to be on the host committee. Mm. So these these benefits are, you know, sort of diversifying the way that they can earn revenue and earn and earn money for these um, these. Uh, charity organizations, but it's uh, to go back to your question: Why have a party? I think it's great for for PR for the event, um, for the organization, but also if we learned anything during the pandemic, it's that people mm. people love to celebrate. People want to come together. It's a moment for everyone involved in the charity. Um, you know, if, if it's a nonprofit, a lot of the employees of the nonprofit will be present, and it's a nice moment to sort of like commemorate all the work that they're doing. Um, but PR is so so important to these organizations, and and that's sort of where Vogue um, comes comes into to play. It's expensive to put on these these events; they're really well produced. But for the most part, the charities themselves aren't covering all of the production costs. So there right. will be an event. That's where sponsors come into play. Okay, um, tell us more about that. <laughs> and the sponsors, uh, it's really case by case uh, for each individual event. But uh, the benefit of a company, you know, sponsoring a gala is it, this go, also goes back to PR. Mm-hmm. You get your name on the invitation. If I think beauty sponsorships are very uh, popular in uh, the types of galas that Vogue.com is covering and the types of events that I'm going to. Why um, is that? I think uh, the beauty uh, the beauty industry and, and beauty brands have a lot of money to spend, um, but it's also it's good alignment because you have a, a certain type of individuals, especially if there's celebrities going to these parties. The celebrities might need you know hair and makeup and glam, and then uh, that beauty sponsor helps all these celebrities get ready. They're posting it on their Instagram. So it's a nice like They're fusion. also giving a gift bag to a lot of high net worth individuals who then might try that Estee Lauder lipstick and then want to rebuy that. So mm-hmm. that's good marketing for them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So when you say sometimes celebrities attend, influencers attend, mm-hmm. I feel like people have said to me in the past, like, I don't understand. Is, is so-and-so paying for her seat at this gala? How does How does that work? Gala seats are handled um, in two ways. So a a company can buy a table at a gala, and that is uh, paid for by that company. Let's say it's a fashion brand. Let's think of the Met Gala. Um, Louis Vuitton will have a table. Mm -hmm. Louis Vuitton buys a table at the Met Gala, and then they invite their guests. Their guests don't have to pay, but their guests are guests of Louis Vuitton who has paid. So um, for the most part, celebrities are not paying for their Seats. What's an average ticket cost, let's say, for one seat at a New York City Spring Gala? For, say, Venice, most recently, it was $2,000 a for ticket a seat. for one seat. They had oh, recently wow. raised the prices. Um, but that's, that's on the high end. That's on the high end. Um, for something a little bit more, uh, a little less exclusive, like the Whitney Art Party, 
which is targeting uh, a more youthful demographic. And, and it's, it's not seated? It's not seated. Right. So okay. you can you can sort of gain entry to these events that um, are not seated galas and they're more cocktail parties with past foods. Those ticket prices probably start at $250 um, and, and go up from that. Uh, I'm thinking of the, the Frick Young Fellows Gala, which took place last month at the uh, the Frick Madison. Those tickets were, I, I believe, around $500. Okay. Another non-seated. Right. Um, very fun event. Talking about, like, seated gala tickets, I think they start at, you know— 1K. Upward. Yeah. The only ones I miss are— the ones that feel really like glamorous old New York, like the opera, the ballet, those are really fun oh, really? because people actually are dressed up. They're excited to be part of the arts culture in New York. So I didn't know this. The first time I went to the New York City Ballet's Fall Fashion Gala was by complete accident. Right. I had purchased a ticket to the ballet one night in September. Um Oh, and it just happened to be the gala? It happened to be the gala, and it was the first ever gala. I had no idea what I was walking into. Anne Hathaway, Mr. Valentino, Sarah Jessica Parker were all there. Uh, The Lila Ramsey origin story. (laughs) (laughs) I was dressed up for a regular night at the ballet. I wasn't in, like, gala gear. I was dressed up. (laughs) I was dressed up. I was in black tie, but I've never seen you in sweatpants. I don't think I've seen you in jeans, Lila. Do you wear jeans? Lila and Carl Lagerfeld have very similar (laughs) style You don't own jeans, right? Do you own jeans i have a I, I have a pair of black <laughs> black jeans that i've never seen I've her never, in jeans or sneakers i don't think i've seen That's you true. in sneakers no lila's currently wearing gingham capris and um, black <laughs> chanel ballet slippers <laughs> it's a very audrey off duty vibe yes here. audrey off duty is as casual as it gets let me tell you i just i can't pull them off <laughs> My dad doesn't wear jeans, but it's because of American imperialism. So a slightly different reason. Oh, fascinating. <laughs> yeah. He's wow. never worn jeans. So what what is is he a suit guy? He like He wore suits when I was a kid, even on the weekends. <laughs> um I love but that. now he wears like you know, like slacks or like, like yeah, he has more casual now and he wears sneakers, which he didn't ever when I was a kid, but now he's quite old, so he can't walk in those <laughs> shoes. Very I love formal. that. Yeah. Okay, so tell us next week's schedule. Um, This is reminding me of what I have to do every Monday morning, which is uh, list all the parties that we are covering to Anna in our weekly editorial meetings because uh, everyone likes to know what's happening. So we're mostly focused on New York events, but things happen in Los Angeles, um, of course, and those are the two cities that we're focused most most on. But uh, the Whitney Museum has a studio party next week. I'll be going to that one. Studio Party is a uh, event that takes place at the museum um, in the Meatpacking District, and it is honoring um, an artist named Juan Quick to See Smith. Um, that artist has an exhibition at the at the Whitney right right now, and um, the Studio Party is you know a more casual event that the Whitney hosts and a lower financial bar. It's sort of for a younger. Uh, cool. demographic of benefit. Sounds of like donor. my kind of party. Mm-hmm. You should come. <laughs> <laughs> you can be my plus one. <laughs> Do you go home before these to get dressed? You live uptown. I have to go home. Um, I think there, there. once upon a time, 
I took over the printer room. I don't know if everyone, anyone remembers this. I remember this. I remember this. I took over the printer room and made it a, like a makeshift dressing room where I was permanently storing. I had a, like three ball gowns in there at any any given wow. moment just in case I couldn't figure out what I was going to wear or a designer's dress sample that I was waiting on got lost <laughs> the in the Xerox messenger. machine turned into <laughs> Lila's changing table. <laughs> Unbelievable. There was a mirror. Um, it was a whole thing. Yeah, I had like hair tools. And how far advanced do you plan your outfits for these? events? That's a great question because I think everyone has this idea that I'm very much organized and uh, have my ensembles ready to go days ahead. That is absolutely not the case. I am, Let the record show. <laughs> let the record show. It is, it is incredibly last minute. I don't often get hair or makeup done for events. And, uh, you know, I think because of this job, I've been able to figure out how to do my makeup myself. Thank God for Glam Squad. Um, <laughs> for those days where I do need an updo, uh, they they can come over to the apartment. Just to be clear, there's no clothing budget for this. Oh, no. This is all. This is all <laughs> and you're paying for Glam Squad. I'm paying for Glam Squad. Yeah. You know, Instagram changed all of this in a way because now anyone can sort of make themselves into an it girl of sorts by just going to a store event for a brand. But once upon a time, these society pages in magazines and newspapers, they were all from these charity events. So if you wanted to be someone on the social scene 30, 40, 50 years ago, you went to these events, you bought your ticket, you wore your nice dress, and you got a photo taken of yourself. And now you can sort of take your photo of yourself wherever you want in your apartment and maybe have the same effect. And it just has diluted that a bit. But historically, like, th- this was it. These, this was your opportunity to – I mean, I just I was very into New York Magazine's It Girl issue. And, like, this was a way to be an uptown It Girl mm-hmm. and sort of be minted on the scene that way. Being a part of, like, society and being an It Girl, I think, goes hand in hand with being, you know, in, in philanthropy, involved in th- philanthropy in some way. So you're absolutely right. I think Instagram has changed that just a little bit. But I'm even thinking of, you know, HBO's The Gilded Age and how someone had an amazing line. I'm not going to remember what it is exactly, but it was, like, um, charity is a way for you to... Uh, you know, transcend whatever social class you're in, because if you if you have the means, you can be involved in these sorts of benefits. Yeah, Gilded Age was great for that. It was sort of the origin of of social climbing through uh, charity work. Exactly. I can't remember what what was the what was it the was the, the the character. It's the Carrie Coon character who's like the Vanderbilt, um, you know, mm-hmm. a revista, and that's that's the way to to do it is to just flex your financial muscle to really help a cause. So it, it has been. Very efficient stepladder. <laughs> Lila, thank you so much. I feel like we really did a Gala Season 101 <laughs> class today. Oh, thank you so much for coming, Lila. Oh, you're so Good welcome. Good luck on your uh, spring season. I appreciate it. The run-through will be back in just a moment. I'm Celeste, and I'm here with Jade and Emily, and we are so excited to announce our new show, After Hours. We're three female founders who became friends through, well, trauma bonding over entrepreneurship. These days, we come together after work to discuss the highs, lows, and hilarious moments we all experience as we build our companies in our 20s as first-time founders. 
We're dishing advice, spilling secrets we wish we knew so you don't have to make the same mistakes we did, oversharing in the best ways, giving our legal teams anxiety, and peeling back the curtains behind startup life. So close your computers, we know it's hard, and pour yourself a glass of something because After Hours is now in session. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Maybe a chef-grade range made you want to hone your cooking skills, or a high-tech tennis racket made you want to work on your backhand. I recently bought a new pair of running shoes, and that made me love hitting the pavement again. Well, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This podcast is supported by Macy's. Mother's Day is May 12th, and Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Shop by price, 25 and under to 100 and under. Category, like fragrances and handbags. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything or for grandma. Macy's has all the hottest gift ideas like Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, Samsung smart TVs, and more. Go to macy's.com slash gift finder to shop. That's macy's.com slash gift finder today. So we're back with TRT and Mother's Day is just around the corner, which is confusing for me because Mother's Day is not celebrated that way. In... That's true. When is Mother's <laughs> Day in the UK? It's in March, and I always miss it because he, you know, in the in the US, it's in May. So um, I'm always a bad daughter. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, l- luckily we were able to speak to my dear friend Elaine Walteroth, who's recently become a mom. She is a journalist, an author, and TV host. And in 2016, she was named editor in chief of Teen Vogue and she's the first she's the youngest and she's the first black editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue so her so she made a lot of history just in her role and she also shifted the focus of the coverage and made it more political and it had more of a a social justice kind of bent and Outside of Teen Vogue, since then, she's been a judge on Project One Way and she's written a memoir. And of course, she's had a baby and he's the cutest little thing ever. And he's so fun to to play with. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's, yeah, he's adorable. He just turned one. My daughter Alice was born uh, about the same time. And I remember I follow Elaine on Instagram and noticing that she was doing a lot of visibility work about black maternal health rates and she was hosting an instagram live series called maternity ta Mm -hmm. um so it was it was helpful to have her really filling the gap of any lack of information there especially for black women who found that the statistics around birth rate birth death rates and maternal health uh, numbers are just staggering the difference between it's shocking black women and any other race yeah and I remember her telling me her birth story she she was nearly at the end of her pregnancy before she sort of figured out a way to feel safe and taken care of and she ended up going with a midwife which is kind of unconventional in this country even though the rest of the world that's pretty much the protocol anywhere else you know I think it, it's been so it's been so great to see her. Kind of spread the word and 
inform us about exactly what is happening because I think it's a, it's an actual crisis. You know, we are right. in a we are in a crisis. Well, and also when we were researching this piece, I think we were both just staggered by yeah. the statistics that horrible. The U.S. has the highest maternal death rate of any high income co- nation that's only growing in the last fifteen years by thirty percent. Yeah, yeah, and the you know the when you when you hear about the fact that you know black people in general are when it comes to pain or or any kind of medication there's there, there are all these misconceptions about black bodies and it's it's it, it it's it's really magnified in 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 the world of maternal health so elaine really tried to has tried to combat that she worked with um a black doula and midwife uh team she um interviewed several uh, doctors, several, quite a few. Yeah. So it'll, we were curious to talk to her about that and about what she's learned and, and how she's kind of helping to spread the word about these biases and real gaps in maternal health care in the U.S. Yeah. And it's great to know, to hear that Elaine's maternity series will be back later this month. Yeah. So that was um, one of the reasons we wanted to chat with her. Yeah. And the... On the eve of that coming back and, of course, um, celebrating Mother's Day. It's her – not her first Mother's Day. Her second. But her second. But I'm sorry. The first three months with a new baby doesn't count. You're basically <laughs> still pregnant and they're just like tiny d- donuts. <laughs> they're like – they're little burritos in their swaddles. <laughs> Elaine! Hi, Elaine! Hi! <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for joining us. No, I'm so excited to do this with you guys. I love your podcast. Thank and I love, you. I just love that this exists. When I first saw that ad, I like squealed. I was like, this <laughs> makes so much sense. This is so good. And we're really excited to have you on. Where are you right now, Elaine? Are you not at home? I'm here in New York, actually, right now, oh. just for the quickest trip of all time. I got in like really late last night and I'm leaving straight away. Oof. Because my baby's birthday's tomorrow. I know. What's the first what's the first birthday plan? Okay, are you guys ready? We're so ready. We are doing a baby soul cella birthday party (laughs) for my baby. So it's like, so it's like we felt like Coachella was maybe a little basic. So we so we were like, let's do like soul cella where it's half soul train, half Coachella vibes. Mix oh my God, I love it. It's going to be like a 70s music festival vibe. The performers, in air quotes, are the guests. So the oh, guests I are like that. To, yes, there's like a stage. It's a whole thing. You have to come with a karaoke song and perform it for the baby because he loves music. Aww. He is like, oh, well, he, can't, he takes after his dad. Yeah, dad Jonathan. And his, whole, I mean, literally, my whole family is musical except for me. So it just gets <laughs> me okay. and went right to him. It's going to be your but, first Mother's Day. As well, actually, no. Last year was my first. Oh yes, of course. Born in April, but but this one's gonna be. I think this is gonna. I think I'm gonna feel it more. I think I was still in this like postpartum haze, and it's getting real now, guys. Like at one, it starts to get really real. You're like, wow, I'm really a mom. This is. You know, I remember seeing your your baby boy in your arms, and you told me the birth story, and I think. I'd never heard one. I don't know why my friends have never told me their stories in, or maybe not such in great, beautiful detail. And I was quite shook, to be quite honest. You were? <laughs> and I was rereading your time, the, the the piece that you wrote for Time, and I actually was, I, don't, I got very emotional about it because 
not being seen by doctors, not feeling that they have time for you, it is like a major, it's a major thing for me. And I find, I found it quite hard to read because I, I was reminded of just how difficult it must be to to get that attention that you need. And when you're going through something for the first time, um, I mean, and, and hearing your, your birth story, I was like, well, you need a lot of support. You need, you need people advocating for you, you know? Yeah. yeah. Totally. But when I found out I was pregnant, I basically freaked out. Right. I was like, how at 35 with a husband in a house, does it feel this scary to find out that I'm pregnant and like feel so unprepared, you know, and I just moved to L.A. I didn't have a doctor, let alone an OBGYN. I didn't know the first thing about what to do when you become pregnant. But, you know, with any Google search or call to a friend, they're like, just you'll just find a doctor. And it sounded easy. So I was like, cool. You know, I I you know, asked for great recommendations. And I live in LA. I went to the, you know, what they say is the best hospital for giving birth. I thought, how hard could this be? I'm a people person. I'm a journalist. I know how to find what I need. I got the resources and connections. Like we let's, let's, let's do this. Let's have a baby. Let's find the doctor. And um, it was really so much harder than I ever anticipated to find a doctor that made me feel safe. Listen, being pregnant is the most vulnerable state a woman will ever find themselves in. And I I feel like I'm pretty freaking brave and pretty strong. And at first, I really thought, like, I just might be unlucky here. You know, like, this was a fluke. The next one will be better. The next one will be better. And every experience was just almost worse than the last. How many doctors did you see? This is so awful. You guys aren't going to believe this, but it, it, it took me eight doctors. Oh, wow. my God. Wow. Realize that, okay, this is a systemic problem. Mm. And I started to learn more about the maternal mortality crisis in this country. Once I once you hear as a as a black woman, as a woman of color who's pregnant, that black women in particular die at a rate of three to four times more than white women in this country, it's incredibly frightening. And so even more so, you want to make sure that your doctor is sensitive to your health and your wellness and will and your needs. The first thing I did when I became pregnant on the recommendation of a very good friend of mine was um, I watched The Business of Being Born, which if I've you have not seen this. it, it's a must see. Mm -hmm. It is a must see for everyone, but particularly for anyone who ever plans to have children. It shows you how broken our, our medical system is and our maternal health care system in particular. And it explains why you are rushed in and out of offices, why you are not encouraged to ask questions, why, you know, a doctor will will try to intervene often with your birth when maybe it's not always necessary. Our country has one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the in the developed world. It's unbelievable. Even after I had my child, I found out that in our country in the last two years, the maternal death rate has been surging. It's up 40%. It's counter to nature that we would step into the hospital system, give up all of our power, to the an authority that isn't informing us about our options and then we just kind of like a lot of women end up with birth trauma that they don't they don't even know to call it birth trauma right. they don't even know that what happened to them was 
was wrong, but they just feel badly. They feel wrong. Oh, my God. I had an emergency C-section the first time and I was like just rocked by it for months. It's just it's so crazy. Sorry. No, I mean, it's OK. It's OK. You know, we're OK now. It's just wild that that's happens. So many people I know had emergency C-sections and it's just it's a very intense experience it um, is, that it's, no it's one sort of- really discusses to the point you think they should. Yeah. And it, it's even talked about like it's called a routine C-section in this yeah. country. Hmm. And the thing is, like, it's a serious it's a major surgery. And what I've come to understand is that it's not always necessary, but it is advantageous for hospitals to give C-sections because they can get them done quickly. Yeah. And you end up paying more sure. for your birth. Because I had seen the film, The Business of Being Born, I understood that there is a whole world of midwives, like midwifery care and and um, home births. And I started thinking about like whether I should be considering that. And a couple of people pointed me to this midwife named Kimberly Durden, who is like a saint. I was probably 30 weeks by the time I met her. Mm-hmm. So it was towards the end of my pregnancy. I was seeing a different doctor for every appointment because oh, I was wow. dating, I was literally dating doctors oh, while I was pregnant. <laughs> Sounds and exhausting. I mean, it was. It was truly exhausting. I was like, it's like Who Bumble MD. I know, Bumble MD. It was, oh my gosh, can somebody please create a Bumble? I'm going to match you with I'm, the doctor. That would be incredible. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to call a meeting with Bumble after this because I think that's a brilliant idea, Bumble MD, to help match you with your perfect doctor, matchmaker. I would sign up immediately. So would I. After the eight doctors, I started to open my mind to the possibility of working with a midwife outside of the hospital, at least for my prenatal care. I wasn't fully, I wasn't anywhere near ready to commit to a home birth. Um, I still had a lot of the same fears that a lot of people do about what that means. And, you know, is that more risky and dangerous? Mm. Um, Especially because it's my first pregnancy. I didn't know what to expect. Also, for people who don't know, uh, Elaine and I, both 35 and over, are considered geriatric pregnancies. It's a really nice thing to be told when you're (laughs) told you're pregnant. They're like, oh, yeah, you're a special high-risk geriatric pregnancy. Oh, lovely. (laughs) Sorry, carry on. (laughs) Right. You're just like, excuse me. Yeah. I think we. I think that needs a rebrand. It really um, needs. <laughs> I've heard that they now called advanced age. Oh, there you go. Advanced age. <laughs> yeah, I know it's kind of scary when someone tells you that. That did make me feel a little bit even more nervous about yeah. the idea of considering a home birth. Um, I got to a place where I was more afraid of giving birth in a hospital than I was giving birth at home in the care of my midwife. Wow just understanding this issue of maternal mortality and why this is happening in the most developed country in the world, the richest country in the world with the most advanced technology. I, I discovered that there is the the CDC. Okay. Like legitimate research has been done on this. And they say that 80% of these deaths are preventable Mm, with with the intervention of midwives and doulas. Can you make the distinction between a doula and a midwife? Yeah. So, um, by the way, I was listening to your uh, podcast interview with Erica. I know the ultimate doula. (laughs) I'm like, be my doula. That would be 
epic. Oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> um, so a midwife is akin to a doctor and a doula is akin to a nurse, except she is with you throughout the entire prenatal process, um, just by your side, offering holistic support. Doulas aren't necessarily medical, you know, medically trained professionals, whereas midwives are. Midwives are medically trained professionals who are uniquely and specifically trained to assist births. Are any midwives surgically trained? No, right? No. So that's the distinction, right? Like in a perfect world, there will be, and in some places there are, integrative medical practices that house doctors, midwives, and doulas all in the same place under one roof. And to me, that just makes the most sense. Doctors are there as the surgical medical, medically trained professionals who are there for emergency purposes. They can do the surgery to get the baby out, to save your life. And they are necessary in many, in many high risk situations. Sorry to say. So if you want an epidural, you will not probably be doing a home birth because that is the one thing they cannot, they cannot offer you. And that you guys was like the biggest thing for me. That was the biggest mental hurdle for me. Mm Because when you see anything you hear or see about birth, really in this country revolves around the epidural. It's like you see a woman screaming and like being hurled down the hallways and she's just like, and then she like wants the the drug, you give her the drug and then she's like in this euphoric state. And so that's what I always envisioned. Like I thought that's just part of the deal. And so as much as I loved my midwife and I loved the care that she was giving me, I was really afraid of going through labor at home without the option of having Oof, an epidural. That was not and for so me. I remember saying to her, like, <laughs> I love you and everything, but like, could we just like, can you just like bring an epidural just to have it? Like, and she was like, yeah, that's like the whole thing. Like, that's like kind of the big difference. Like, no. And so she's just like, but if you tap out and you decide you want an epidural, we can do a hospital transfer. And it's our job to make sure that the hospital transfer happens at the right time. Right. At 36 weeks, I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go for a home birth because this woman. Oh, wow. That late? That late. You were wow. like, oh, I'm knocking on the door. <laughs> Baby was like, knock, knock, knock. Um, I'm coming. What's the plan? And I'm like, Okay, I better get your plan together. I, I, and so I was, I was really scared. For anyone who doesn't know, most uh, a baby comes to term at forty weeks, so this is just a month before. Yeah. Okay. And by the way, you can go into labor as early as thirty-seven weeks. Yep. Um. So I was really right there at the cusp, and um, <laughs> that just, I mean, that just goes to show how afraid I was, frankly, about about the decision and and what was best. Will you just tell us yeah. quickly about your Instagram that you started? Basically, when I was going through pregnancy and, and running into all of these challenges and all these things I realized no one talked about, I felt compelled to open up the conversation about all the things no one tells you, kind of like a playoff of what to expect when you're expecting. I wanted to do like what what to expect, what you will not expect when you're expecting and like just really talk candidly about some of the challenges um, that you face and also some of the options that you might not know you have. So I started this Instagram series called maternity, um, with T E A, like spilling the tea on, on kind of maternity related 
matters. And I brought in different experts to just try to bring, you know, a level of access that that not everyone has um, to certain professionals. We talked about everything from like home births, the pros and cons of home births. What's the difference between a midwife and a doula to um, breastfeeding versus formula, which, by the way, I started my baby on formula on day two. So like any of those stereotypes about the kind of mom that get, that does the home birth thing is so outdated. Um, I, you know, in so many ways, I do not fit the stereotype of a home birthing mom. And I absolutely think it was one of the best decisions I ever made. So I'm really excited to do to kick off the next season of it. I kind of took a break once I had my baby. I just did like a a couple emergency episodes, like around sleep training when I was going through that. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but yeah, I'll be kicking off a new season very soon. Amazing. Oh, well, Elaine, thank you so, so much. And um, happy Mother's Day. Yeah, happy Mother's Day. Thank you. Thank you so All much, right. guys. Bye, Elaine. Great to see you. Bye. Bye, you guys. The run-through will be back in just a moment. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. So there is a parenting newsletter from the New York Times right. that uh, several friends during the pandemic um, recommended I sign up for. And that is written by a journalist, Jess Gross, who uh, I actually went to college with. And so oh, we wow. have didn't quite a few that. mutual friends. And she is a bit when I told people, colleagues at Vogue, that we were interviewing Jess, everyone was like, oh, I follow her on Instagram. I listen to everything she says. And she just writes about a variety of issues that our American parents are facing. And she has published a book about basically the un, how unsustainable American motherhood is. Right. So we have sort of twin sides of the, the challenges of motherhood, both um, maternal and pregnancy health with Elaine, and then what happens when your child actually is kicking and screaming and needs to be handled. <laughs> and uh, Jess's book is called Screaming on the Inside, which I think is a very <laughs> funny title. And uh, we just thought it would be fun to talk to her around Mother's Day to hear a little bit about, I, I thought her book was sort of fascinating about the history of motherhood in America and these expectations that are placed on moms and how that's evolved and shifted and also how it hasn't, which is mm. sort of the most surprising part. Mm. I'm excited to hear your conversation. Jess, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. We Thank are you. very excited. When I 
sent an email to the Vogue moms and some dads that you were coming on. There was a frisson of excitement. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I love to inspire a frisson of anything. (laughs) Um, We have had such a great time reading your book, and it's really cuts home for me with a, I have a two-year-old and a six-month-old, and just, I'm always impressed by the stoicism of most moms. I feel like I'm screaming on the outside a lot of the time, Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, your title is one of my favorite things about the book. I think it's fantastic. It's called Screaming on the Inside. Where did that come from? That actually was my agent's genius idea. We were kind of struggling to get the entire idea of the book, which is that motherhood in America is so much harder than it needs to be mm-hmm. um, for a variety of sort of structural and cultural reasons. And I couldn't explain it to myself. And I felt that part of what makes it so hard is that it, everyone is so individual and so siloed and they feel like they are suffering through it alone. Right. Um, and at the same time, they feel like they need to perform a certain facade. Right. Not just publicly, but also on social media, which is sort of the new wrinkle of motherhood. Right. And so I wanted to get across that sort of disconnect between how everyone was feeling and how everyone was feeling that pressure to perform some sort of perfection. I want to make clear that this book is not a bummer. There's so much of motherhood that is incredibly funny and delightful. And so it also had a little bit of a wink. Tell us about the book's origin story. Was this something that you'd been batting around for a long time or did the motherhood crisis of COVID really helped make the idea pop and sort of crystallize? It was both. Okay. Um, so I'm, I've been sort of mulling something since my older daughter was maybe two. I had a very difficult pregnancy with my older daughter. I had hyperemesis, so I was throwing up all the time, and I got incredibly depressed and anxious because that'll happen to you when you sure. do not eat solid food for months. And then the pandemic happened, and that was when things really crystallized in so many ways because every mother realized how rickety and incomplete the structures that surrounded motherhood in the United States were um, and how they were expected to do absolutely everything. Right. You call mothers the shock absorbers. Yeah, they are the shock absorbers. There's so many great historical gems in the book. I feel like you must have done so much research. Sounds like you really scanned the depths of motherhood. Uh. (laughs) I read a lot. Uh, One thing that really hits home to me is a lot of people will say, oh, why didn't anyone tell me about this? Why isn't anyone writing about this? And it's like people have been talking about this and writing about this for hundreds of years. Just nobody listened to them. So that was such a pang. That was sort of a beautiful revelation, though, because you I would read these diaries and letters. And that was the sort of most moving part was reading diaries and letters of mothers from, you know, the 18th and 19th century and having their complaints and their struggles sound basically contemporary, if not for the antiquated language. And so that was very lovely to read about. I did feel like there were a couple of historical moments where I was like, huh, we've kind of gone backwards. Like in colonial America, fathers were more intimately involved in their kids' day-to-day life because they worked around the home. And so they were more present. Whereas now I feel like, at least pre-pandemic, mothers could be so isolated and so completely alone all day. And so I was intrigued that sort of maybe the distribution of labor between partners wasn't always as uneven. But maybe I'm just being... 
quixotic. No, I mean, I think that that's there's something to that only in that. I think we have an idea that mothers are sort of innately attuned or better at certain things, and that is just not the case. I certainly do not want to be a colonial mom churning butter. Absolutely not. No no interest. And, I mean, part of the reason that mothers were less involved is that they were thought of as not sort of morally respectable enough to raise moral children. So it was, you know— that something as important as your child's theological right. um, instruction and upbringing that could only be for men, right? So okay, it, so not great. It certainly wasn't, you know, any sort of feminist utopia. But right. um, in terms of who's sort of innately um, constructed to care for children, that is an idea that has been gone back and forth over time. And there's certain certain things that I think have always been associated with the mother role. I mean, I'm still amazed at how unfungible it seems. Like, taking my son to school, one parent had to wait for the one hour a day for their first week of preschool. And I'm in a room with eight other women. Mm-hmm. They're all talking about how they have to be at their jobs, but they're not because they're here. And I'm like, wh- and I know they're all partnered. I'm like, where are the partner? It was just bizarre. And then the second day I had a meeting. So my husband went and he was like, yeah, it was me and seven moms. <laughs> it's it's just wild. I know. What I found reporting the book is it's actually so much work to go against gender norms. Yeah. You know, whether you're a same-sex couple or whether you are in a hetero couple and you're trying to have the father be the primary parent, it ruffles expectations and creates extra work. I thought it was interesting that the word that most came up when you interviewed women was guilty. Yep. What are they guilty about? Like, of what is the range of things that they are telling you they're guilty about? Oh, my God. You name it. <laughs> I bought non-organic milk instead of organic milk. Oh my God. I, you know, I went back to work instead of staying home. I mean, at the end of the day, it's always like I have a perception that I have put my own needs in front of my child's needs. Right. In any scenario ever. Right. Is what it often boils down to. And you talk about that, that this concept of total motherhood, where if you don't give 100 percent of yourself, then you're not being a good parent. Have you found that that's U.S. specific? There was a statistic that you said that of 22 countries looked at, American mothers were the most miserable. Yes. So I think, unfortunately, it is actually creeping to, I mean, you know, America is a cultural behemoth and are sometimes, you know, sometimes that's great and sometimes it's not. And so I think some of our norms are bleeding elsewhere, but often in places where it's less of an individualistic culture, uh, people feel less individual responsibility to make everything go right. Do you feel like there's any scenario in which social media is helpful With parenting or is it all just making you feel terrible about yourself because it's like these blonde blogger knackle. I (laughs) love that term. Blogger knackle is apparently the term for the Mormon industrial complex on momfluencers. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Um, I think there's a lot of it's like anything else. There's a lot of positive to be taken from it and there's a lot of negative to be taken from it. I think in terms of connection and support, especially if you're going through a hard time, I have spoken to so many parents who have found just both practical and emotional and even spiritual support when their kid was in the NICU or when they were struggling with fertility or any number of issues. Um, And so I think it's really great for that. Um, I think if you are trying to find like-minded people, 
Yeah. And you might not necessarily have them locally for you. Right. Just it makes you can feel make you feel profoundly less alone. I want to be clear also, it's like I have no problem with the mom influencers. You know, get that coin. I have do you yeah. like I <laughs> totally. your hustle is what it is. Totally. Um I like looking at beautiful images too sometimes. Yeah. Um I think where it just gets tricky is um if that culturally is everybody's ideal. Yeah. Like, that's not my ideal for a number of reasons, but I still like looking at the picture sometimes. So yeah. it's just being able to have some sort of emotional remove from it, which is hard sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I try so hard not to be a judgmental bitch about everyone I'm seeing on social media, but it's very hard. Okay, so here's my feeling about this. That is what the group chat or the text is for. Yes. Like, it's just the problem. There's a lot of screenshots. <laughs> Screenshot. Well, because you can't. I've gotten into really sticky DM situations where I think I'm sending it to a friend and then respond to the person. Oh, no, that's a roughie. Yeah, you don't want that. You don't want that. No, no, no. No, it's just, listen, everyone in the entire world is judging constantly. Yeah. That's human. That is human. We're all humans. I think actually one of the biggest problems with social media is not even the images themselves. It's the judgmental comments below them. So it's just like. Keep that private. We don't need to hear it. We don't need to see it publicly. I, I don't need to worry like that. That's it's, what you're it's so those... instinctual I though. And like <laughs> I actually, I see my husband doing it too, which I love. He'll like see a friend of ours be posting like all the books I read in August. It's like mm, you have two toddlers. Like how many? <laughs> either you're not reading, or you have a lot of summer childcare. Like <laughs> yes, we all know what is going behind on behind the scenes. Jess, thank you so so much for coming in. This has been, as you can tell, really hit a chord with me. Thanks, you too. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of The Run-Through. The Run-Through with Vogue is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. The show is produced by Susie Lechtenberg, Chelsea Daniel, and Alex John Burns. It's engineered by Jake Loomis and Gabe Quiroga and mixed by Mike Kutchman. See you next week. Happy Mother's Day! Thank you. everyone, it's Chloe, and I'm so excited to share something fabulous with you, Vogue's first ever global fashion community, Vogue Club. Our members get to mingle with Vogue editors, yes, including me, and fellow fashion enthusiasts at exclusive events around the world. And that's just the start. Membership opens doors to the fashion industry, bringing you expert career advice and insider style and beauty tips. What are you waiting for? Head over to Vogue.com membership to join. And here's a little treat. Use code TRT20 and snag 20% off your membership. That's TRT20 for 20% off your ticket to Vogue Club. Are you in?